This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode of the show, it's hunting and conservation with John Staggerwalt and Jared Elm of the Rough Grouse and American Woodcock Society. Welcome to the show for episode number 84. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% of your Onyx Hunt subscription. Did you know that you can now attach photos to your waypoints in Onyx Hunt? That's right, you can attach a photo to a waypoint, adding more detail, more information to each waypoint to keep track of your hunting information and data. Onyx Hunt quickly becoming a one-stop shop for managing historical data and information for all your hunts, memories, anything you want to save and capture out in the field, Onyx Hunt is helping you do that. And I highly suggest you check it out. Head over to onyxmaps.com, download the Onyx Hunt app today. The Project Upland Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You haven't experienced Grouse Camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp experience by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com. 
and by Doctor Callers. For over 30 years, Doctor has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Doctor Callers and all of their products by visiting Doctra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. Gumleaf boots have the performance and comfort you need to take you wherever you want to go in comfort all day long, year after year. Head over to GumleafUSA.com and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from GumleafUSA.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, and everything they have to offer by visiting GordianSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com and get yourself a new kennel today. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Josh D. Josh sent me an email. He's a newly inspired upland hunter, and I appreciate him sharing that with me. And for that, he is a weekly winner of the podcast giveaway. A little twist this week and perhaps the next few weeks. We've got, as always, the Project Upland Podcast t-shirt for folks, but we also have some really cool products from J Bolt Designs out of the UK. They sent me shotgun brass and leather keychains, high quality stuff, handcrafted, and just an all-around cool thing to have. If you're interested in that, head over to J Bolt Designs. That's J B O U L T Designs.com. You can check out more of his stuff. But our winners for the next couple of weeks are going to have their choice of a Project Up and T shirt or a shotgun brass and leather keychain from J Bolt Designs. You could be next week's winner. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. Love to hear from our listeners. Email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, for a couple more days we've got a black friday special going on at projectupland.com for 50 bucks you get a limited edition project upland t-shirt and a one-year subscription to project upland magazine make a great gift idea for somebody or if you just want to treat yourself you can do that as well head over to projectupland.com go to the shop look for the black friday special limited edition t-shirt and a one-year subscription to project upland magazine for 50 bucks All right, here we go. On today's episode, I am joined by John Staggerwalt and Jared Elm, both conservation professionals for the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. John, Jared, myself met up for a little field time a couple of weeks ago in northern Wisconsin. We went out grouse hunting for the day. At the end of the day, we gathered around the table at my family's cabin in northern Wisconsin and recorded this podcast. We talked about grouse and woodcock hunting, and we talked a lot about the conservation and habitat work performed by these two gentlemen and their partners and colleagues at the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. And if you are 
feeling thankful and grateful for the opportunities that you have to hunt rough grouse and woodcock, I highly encourage you to consider contributing to the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society Giving Tuesday campaign which is officially launching this upcoming Tuesday. However, it's already live. You can head over to roughgrousesociety.org. They're also running a fundraiser on Facebook. Look up the Rough Grouse Society Giving Tuesday campaign and give back to conservation today. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you think about what this organization does for rough grouse and woodcock hunters as you listen to this. Now let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, John Staggerwalt and Jared Elm. Here we go, gentlemen. Project Upland Podcast. We are not necessarily on the air, but we're coming to the listeners from somewhere in northern Wisconsin after a day of grouse hunting. It is November 14th. Had a good day in the woods. We're here at the cabin. We're going to chat a little bit about grouse hunting, a little bit about the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society. And with me, I've got two guests here. I'm going to start to my left and have them introduce themselves. John, how you doing, man? Not too bad. Good seeing you again, Nick. Yeah, fun likewise. day in the woods today. Yeah, we did. We had a nice we had a nice day in the woods. John, tell us uh, sort of name name rank everything. Serial everything. number. Yeah, exactly. Um, my name is uh, John Staggerwalt. I'm the regional biologist for the Rough Grouse Society, covering Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, and some of Minnesota. That's a large territory. It it sounds like a large territory, but when you put it in perspective, um, there really aren't any grouse in Illinois. Um, there's very limited area of grouse in Iowa, even Wisconsin. You're talking no grouse and very few grouse in southeastern Wisconsin. Right, so right. You start to put the territory in context. It's actually not that large. That's true. What's this is? I'm going to go way way out there right away. What's the status of? I mean, Illinois. I assume there were grouse there at one time. Are they gone? At, at one at one time they're gone, um, you know I'm I'm not too positive as far as their current status in in Illinois. Um, I, I do know that the Iowa DNR does not manage for them. They're just not a, a target species. I think they've the essentially Ill, Ill, essentially Illinois. written off Illinois Illinois DNR. Okay, yeah. they they've essentially written off the the management form. There's a lot of difficulties that come into play uh, trying to manage rough grouse in, in Illinois. You're talking a lot of farm country. Yep. Of course, they're not a farm bird. They're a forest bird. Yeah. Um, you have a lot of urban sprawl in areas where they, they may have been at one point in time. So it, it, there's a lot of hurdles to cover it in, in Illinois. So it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, you have to focus on what your target species are going to be. Yeah. But we do still have a lot of really active, uh, generous and right. uh, members in Illinois who hunt in northern Wisconsin and, and the yeah. UP. Yeah. So we do have a lot of support in, in Illinois. Yeah, I think I I do know the few, not necessarily the few, but the the bird hunters that I do talk to from Illinois, they often talk about heading north to Wisconsin, to the state that we're in, to, to hunt grouse, where obviously opportunities are much, much better. But I, I would say, you know, we, we are the Rough Grouse Society slash American Woodcock Society, yep. and that's one thing that people do overlook a little bit when it comes to states like Illinois, that, yeah, we may not have rough grouse there, but there are definitely opportunities to manage uh, flyover habitat yep. for American woodcock. I would they, they, they must have resident woodcock there, too. Uh, they, they do, but uh, talking to a lot of, lot of residents, just the transition of, of the woodcock population from the years, definitely not as many as there once was. Sure. The birds are definitely use, utilizing that habitat as flyover. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're definitely moving through there. That's for sure. All right. Well, we got uh, we got another guest here, Jared. You are a Wisconsin resident currently, but not always. Where are you from? I'm originally from Iowa. Iowa. And for Rough Grouse Society, you do. I am a forest wildlife specialist. Um, I'm located in Spooner, Wisconsin, and I cover the northwest chunk of the state. And essentially what I do is assist private landowners with um, navigating federal farm bill programs, um, state programs, and other just general habitat management advice. And it's in a partnership with the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service um, and as well as the Wisconsin DNR. Um, so there's two of us in the state, and I also have my colleague, uh, Dan Hoff, that covers the northeast part of the state. So right now we kind of cover the northern half. I'm in the northwest. Dan's in the northeast. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're definitely going to talk Rough Grouse Society. We're going to talk more about what you two guys do for the organization and for the membership, but uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit of grouse hunting today first. We, we uh, were fortunate enough to spend some time in the woods today. Like I said, it's November 14th. We are... It pains me to say it, but we are we are definitely past the prime time of grouse hunting. But we've got ah, what would you say? I mean, we have a dusting of snow out there. There's, yeah, I'd call it dusting. Yeah, yeah maybe an inch of snow. Yeah, maybe an inch of snow. So the the still very very huntable. We had a nice day in the woods. We saw birds. We were not limited to where we could go based on based on snow conditions or anything like that. So the there's still plenty of hunting left to do. We've got season running through pretty much the end of the year. So. Yep. Deer season's kicking off in Minnesota. Deer season has started, so people are obviously slowing down on their grouse hunting over there. We got a couple extra weeks, I would say, of sort of that bare November day grouse hunting here in Wisconsin because the firearms deer season starts a little bit later. But we spent the day in the woods. How did I do as a guide, guys? I, I was I was toting you around to some of my my covers. How did it go? I was I was a little skeptical <laughs> a while. <laughs> I, I I don't think we did too bad. Yeah. I don't think we did too bad at all. Um, all things considering, it was it was a, a trudge at some points in time. He did put us through some some difficult area, but uh, yeah. uh, a little slick out there with the conditions. Um, at least a lot of those uh, swamps or dragons through were frozen. So yes, I'll I'll take that any day. Yep. Yeah, I think that's something with this part of the year, too, is, you know, a lot of our grouse habitat in Wisconsin is wet. And yep. when you get some freeze down, you're able to kind of, you know, beeline it to spots that normally would take you a long time to get back into. Yeah, and, and spots like like you had mentioned, you know, some of the spots, those grouse that we put up probably had never saw a, a human before. Just yeah. Because people probably weren't getting back there. Very yep. Except me. Yeah, except for you. <laughs> they knew who you were. Yeah. They saw you coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is one of my favorite Favorite parts about, I mean, this this time of year kind of goes back a couple of weeks. Once all, I mean, all of the foliage is down. The only thing that's left basically are the oak trees, like some of the scrub oak trees. Yep. They're, they're still holding some leaves. But for the most part, you got 90, 95% of the cover and foliage down. You get off the trail. I mean, it just feels like you can walk anywhere. It literally feels yeah. like you can. And we have, obviously, that's another thing we have going for us here, big tracks of public land where we could park the truck and we did we did a couple two two and a half hour walks today where you can do a nice big loop through some stuff have a couple of objectives i usually like to have a couple of whether they're aspen cuts or some kind of edge that i'm trying to hit but it feels like you can walk anywhere which is a really nice part about this time of this time of year mm -hmm. yeah and today we were able to see grouse tracks and then very yep. shortly afterwards we were into birds so they give you a little bit more of a warning yeah yeah it was, it was a little, little bit unique in that aspect and of course the time of year that, that we're we're hunting 
the woodcock are, are gone. The season woodcock season is closed. Mm-hmm. But we did manage to put up uh, how many birds we put up? You think? Today? You know, I was trying to figure that out. I didn't. I I kept track on my watch, so I don't know the totals. But I'm going to say the first spot we probably flushed six grouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had. Yeah, I think it's. We were right out of the truck. We actually had good dog work. I would say all things considered, today there was a nice breeze and. I am no scent expert, but I think this time of year, the there's not a lot of scent in the woods, especially when things are frozen. You know, the swamp is frozen and everything. So when the dogs when the dogs get scent, they're on it, and I don't think there's a lot of stuff sort of clouding up their nose really. So we had good dog work. We we were, I mean, fifty yards out of the truck, and your dog was was on point. And actually, I, w- I want to talk about dogs. Um, Jared, you we had your bird dog out. Tell us about your bird dog. Uh, I've got a Vishla who is just about four years old, just a little less than, than four. So name Freya, little Freya. Freya. Yeah. So she's a little bit smaller statured, uh, Vishla. Really? Um, yeah. She's kind of on the small end. I mean, I can 35 pounds. Yep. yep. That's kind of in the fall. That's kind of her, her hunting weight. I, I kind of have a hard time keeping weight on her, but, uh, yeah, She's uh she's actually really progressed a lot this year. So I've only actually uh, lived here in, in Wisconsin, as you mentioned earlier, for two years. So this is my my second full season um, up here. I lived in Michigan for a fall as well in northern Michigan. So that's actually where I first grouse hunted. Okay. Um, first place I saw a grouse. Um, I did a lot of hunting. My my boss there um, was a bird dog guy, and then I also had a had a, a couple friends who had dogs and liked to hunt too. So that that's really where I got introduced to grouse and woodcock hunting um, was when I lived there. That's a that's kind of a good segue too because I I wanted to uh, I'd like to talk about you know you haven't been grouse hunting your whole life you got exposed to it through work basically mm-hmm. and what was it what was your first time grouse hunting like I mean you had had you upland hunted before that yeah so yeah. I you know I grew up in northern Iowa. Um, I grew up in a time when pheasants were very much in decline and kind of, um, I guess what you could call some of the dark years of pheasant hunting. You know, that was when commodity prices were really high. Um, CRP was not as competitive. Um, corn was worth a lot. Um, we had some harsh winters. Um, so, you know, when I was kind of, uh, coming up, you know, a lot of the people in my family were pheasant hunters in the past and had dogs, but they were, um, kind of getting out of it and there just weren't as many birds around. But when I was in college, I uh, met some guys who um, liked to bird hunt and, you know, we started going out more and more um, pheasant hunting. So I had pheasant hunted a fair amount before I moved to Michigan. Yep. Um, but I did, I had never owned a dog and I didn't grow up with a bird dog in the house. Right. So then you moved to, you moved to Michigan after college for work went out hunting with your boss and his dog. That, mm-hmm. that was your first exposure. Yep. Um, he was a, he was a forester for, um, Antrim County. I worked for Antrim County conservation district. And he had two short hairs. Um, he actually grew up in Iowa himself. Oh really? Um, quail hunting in Southern Iowa. Um, and yeah, he, he took me out. Um, you know, we fished quite a bit in the summer together and I think he trusted me enough to bring me hunting. <laughs> his dogs were actually, really good and some of my first experiences with pointing dogs um so it was it was really exciting he you know we really targeted woodcock primarily okay so. and you were in lower michigan northern lower michigan yep so antrim county is um it's uh, uh on the lake shore in northwest okay um michigan so it's kind of up and around from traverse city gotcha okay 
That's yeah. a gorgeous area. So. Yeah, I, I was in Traverse City this summer visiting Del Whitman, who we had on the podcast. But yeah, that was that was my first time through there. That is a that's a very beautiful area. I mean, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of scenery around the Great Lakes in general. But that's uh, it's cool to get out and see sort of the the differences there. John, you grew up in northern Wisconsin, so you. I think we talked about this actually when we were on the yeah. on the wing podcast a little bit, but tell tell the Project Upland listeners a little bit how you got into grouse hunting and what kind of a piece of your life it was growing up. Okay, well for for me growing up, um, <clears throat> grew up in in really in conservation and in forestry. Yeah, um, I, I did did some grouse hunting, um, squirrel hunting, deer hunting when I was when I was younger. Um, had had a uh, Springer a couple labs growing up, a golden retriever. Um, but I kind of lost that connection to upland hunting, at least when I graduated from high school and went on, on to college. Really hadn't really hadn't been a grouse hunter since I was like 18, 19 years old. I, I did grouse hunt, uh, get the opportunity when I was in college, um, similar story to Jared having a mentor that kind of took me out, kind of reintroduced me into, into grouse hunting. Yep. He was somebody who I would fish with regularly and just kind of one of these things he was, he had just gotten a pup um, and he was raising her to be, be a grouse, grouse machine, a grouse woodcock machine. And uh, it just took, took me and my, my now wife out uh, grouse hunting and uh, kind of reignited that passion a little bit for, sure. for rough grouse. So my, my early work uh, in the, in the conservation field in the forestry field was working with a, a gentleman who was uh a little bit of a grouse expert, at least when it came to forestry. So we got to learn uh, more and more about uh, grouse habitat, grouse ecology, that sort of thing. Uh, but it really wasn't until I started working for Rough Grouse Society that it's kind of kicked it back into sure. into, the, into the forefront of of uh, what I like to go out and do as far as uh, hunting, fishing, yep. uh, shooting sports, that type of thing. So it really wasn't until I got kind of really engaged uh uh, with with RGS that we find ourselves here today, we're yeah we're, we're, we're trudging through a lot of grouse cover. Yeah, we're out there doing doing late season hunting when I think a fair number of people most you know, people are done now. Yeah, I mean a lot of people <laughs> will hang it up whether or not they and that maybe has something to do with if you if you live in grouse country, you're much more likely like I do, like you guys do, you're more likely to continue hunting into the fringe season, if you will, I guess you know before firearms deer season kicks off and and maybe conditions keep people out of the woods if you're traveling to hunt grouse you're probably looking at the month of october more so than november but as you guys well know as long as the conditions hold up you can get some phenomenal hunting in november and and well i wouldn't say that the hunting we had today was phenomenal it was certainly good i mean we went into spots we found birds we got shots at birds we ended up putting some birds in the bag which was nice and there was a little uh, there was a bonus critter that ended up in the bag too John. yeah snowshoe hair i'm going to say that i fl- i flushed that to you yeah you know you you that was a perfect serve right to me was when i yelled there was one coming your way did that give you a heads up oh, oh yeah definitely okay. if 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 you didn't do that I me mean, as soon as you yelled that uh, first thing I did was was just look where the dogs are. The hunting instincts and, went up, and then kind yep. of, you know, safety first and foremost. Yeah. Um, looked where you were, looked where Jared was, and yeah, it, you served it right to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and snowshoes don't, uh, you know, they 
a lot of times they just kind of wander away. I mean, they don't sure. really get out of dodge. They just kind of walk away. So when you have a few people, a lot of times you can get some good yeah. extra yeah. opportunities. And, and that that was, as Jared said, that was my my first snowshoe hair. I've I've shot cottontail before, but uh, uh, you know, out grouse hunting, you kick up a hair. You know, it, it's it's always kind of a risk. You got to watch where the dogs are, yeah. where everybody else is at, because they're a little more wily than a grouse or unpredictable than a grouse or a woodcock. So. And they're obviously on the ground. So and, yep. hey, today it worked. I connected. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was that was interesting. I I've never taken a shot at one while grouse hunting. I think I've killed a hare once in my life. You were saying that, Jared, hare and cottontail. How would one dumb question? How would one tell the difference between a hare and a cottontail? Uh, size is probably the biggest. Snowshoes are a lot bigger than a cottontail. They're you know, if you've hunted out west, uh, they're more similar to the size of like a jackrabbit. Yeah. And then snowshoes obviously molt. Um, so right now, the one John shot was kind of uh, half white, half brown, but yep. I saw one today that was almost completely snow white. Okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's probably uh, the biggest indicator. And, you know, really in the Northwoods, um, where we're at right now, you really aren't going to see very many cottontails unless you have some type of urban interface. Okay. Um, when you get farther south of here where you have some agricultural interface, you're going to see a lot more cottontails, but really if you're in young forest habitat where grouse and woodcock live, it's, there's a pretty darn good chance if you're in the upper Great Lakes, it'll be a snowshoe. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Cause I see plenty of them while I'm grouse hunting and it's usually when you're in that young brushy stuff when there's piles and tangles of hazel yeah. brush and stuff. Yeah, snowshoes are a young forest species. They're a young yeah. forest dependent species. And they're also a species that are actually in decline in a lot of the are they really? upper Great Lakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, they coincide with some of the declines in, in woodcock habitat. So that's uh, just... No, or a, woodcock numbers and grouse numbers as well. So tied right to that early yep. successional forest. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely a, a species, you know, f- like for, for my job, a lot of, a lot of what I do is commenting on um, and advocating for young forest habitat and species when it comes to national forest, uh, state forest, county forest throughout my region. That's one of the things that, that, you know, we're hitting on as an organization is not just the decline in rough grouse and American woodcock, but we're also seeing these other species like snowshoe hare in decline just due to a lot of the same issues. Yeah. So it's something that, that we're, we as an organization are definitely, definitely advocating for pro, pro management for, for those type of species. But, uh, you know, what, when we were walking through some of that, some of that really brushy blowdown type stuff that we were in today, <laughs> you know, some of those, uh, those past clear cuts that were just a little bit more dirty, uh, had a little bit more of that brushy cover type component. Um, you know, that's where we, we kicked up the snow shares and what do we have today? Four of them we kicked up. Yeah. That was actually, I think pretty, pretty good numbers. And I, I think we're seeing some improvement regionally, but I think still long ways to go. Hairs are also somewhat cyclical. Right. Well. Right. Yeah. And and I was going to ask that as well, because I don't know how in depth we could really talk about it, but I do know that from just my exposure to the grouse cycle, which in Minnesota, it's always, a, it's always been referred to as a 10 year cycle. It isn't in Wisconsin. Is it sometimes referred to as like a seven year cycle? It, you know, it, it's really between like seven, 11 years. Seven, it, 11. It's, it's nothing okay. written in stone. Okay. Um, you know, we're, as far as the grouse cycle goes, we're Scientists don't yet fully understand the cycle. Right. I, you know, honestly, we probably never will right. fully understand the cycle. It could be related to weather conditions, changes in, in climate over time. It could be related to predator-prey relations. You know, that's one theory that as snowshoe hare populations explode 
in Canada and go through their cyclical cycle, yep. it causes an increase in predators. Those predators could then flux down into the, the lake states and then impact our grouse to cycle. That's yep. one theory. It could be related to um, moon cycles. Um, that's one one theory that I've seen recently. <laughs> it uh, could be related to also disease cycles as well. Sure. So a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Yeah, and and I've heard people say, I've heard people say that, and rightfully so. Everything is cyclical to an to an extent, right? Because there are so many variables and there are so many factors that play into any given species. You're going to see ups and downs in pretty much any species. If you have a good way to measure it, you're going to see ups and downs in those species. The interesting thing about the rough grouse cycle is these time frames and the time frames for a long time. Whether whether they're whether that still holds true today, because I know there's some there is some skepticism as to that time frame. But if you look at the charts in the past, that 10 year cycle. That's the interesting thing to me, at least, about the grouse cycle is that it really was tied to uh, like a specific time frame, and you have different peaks and different troughs within that. But I mean, if you look at that chart pretty consistently on that ten, seven to eleven year cycle, these birds are going up and down. So that's a little bit different than just saying, "Hey, everything has its ups and downs," because it's so it's a it's a pattern. And, and there's there's two really important things to to consider when you when you look at the rough grouse population over time. And the first major thing is that throughout much of the eastern United States, we're we're losing grouse's species. Like we're we're losing numbers of grouse overall. Um, so there's a long-term systemic decline of of rough grouse, and a lot of that's really due to changes in forest habitat over time. So you kind of have to parse that out from the cycle itself, the peaks and valleys within that. Sure. You know, when the rough grouse decide, when we when we talk about just we're we're losing rough grouse. Some people might think, oh, we're just at that part in the cycle where we're, right. lo- we're losing rough grouse. No, to clarify, we're losing rough grouse mm-hmm. just because of these changes in forest habitat. So over time, those drumming counts that we get every spring, at least in Minnesota and Wisconsin where we still do the surveys, we're, we're slowly in a downward trend. Right. The other thing to kind of point out is actually there was some recent research uh, in 2017 out of UW-Madison uh, that basically concluded that if the the predictions of of climate change come true for our region, uh, which we're predicted to least Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, we're predicted to get a little bit wetter as far as our climate goes, um, our weather goes. If that happens, we actually may see some sort of destabilization of the the cycle of of, of rough grouse. So and that's that you know maybe very well could explain some of the recent changes in the trend where maybe it's not as consistent as sure. it once was, yep. but uh, still a lot of unknowns when it comes to that. Because, uh, But that leads to the other part that we have to point out is that the grouse don't cycle throughout their entire range. You know, in, right. in the upper Great Lakes, we're, we're kind of yep. a little bit unique, at least in the continental United States. Yeah. A lot of interesting variables and things affecting that. And again, as long as I've been grouse hunting in this area, I've heard about the grouse cycle. So I have some familiarity to it and I've always kind of known that there's not really a not really a specific you can't look up the definition and the explanation of that cycle but we started we started on down that path because we were talking about hares and I've always known that hares are kind of thrown into that mix when you're talking about the rough grouse cycle and there's some easy stuff for for a guy like me who's not a biologist or a scientist that you can think about logically if there's a bunch of hares on the landscape, maybe maybe predators start all of a sudden targeting 
hares and they make them a primary food source and maybe girls get a break or something. I don't I don't exactly know how. Do you have any thoughts on that, John? I I, w- I wouldn't look at it like that. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's a good way of examining it. Th- these relationships are, are just they're they're super complex. Sure. And you know the overarching thing I think that um, hunters should take away from the surveys that are put out, the population index, because uh, that's really what, what a, a drumming survey is. It's an index of the population. It tells us of the population going up or going down or staying the same. That's really all, all the, the index does. People tend to kind of focus too much on that and it's something they can put in their pocket to, yeah. to understand uh, rough grouse and their, their population. But quite frankly, when it comes to people being an upland hunter, I, I wouldn't focus on that because... Are you really not going to buy a dog because we're in the low part of the cycle or right into the low part of the cycle? We, we as hunters, we only have so many opportunities to go out in a year or go out in our lifetime. You know, we're going to hit a point in our, our life. We're going to be too old. We're going to be a little bit slow in the woods. You know, (laughs) are we going to let, let some troughs in the the cycle, some low points of the cycle kind of really push us towards not getting a dog? No, I I don't think so. So I, I, as a, as far as hunters should focus on, Getting a dog and get out in the woods. Yeah. Of course, um, you you asked about Jared's dog, but yeah, you didn't bring up. Uh, well, uh, you're dogless as of today, but about two two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks I'm so, picking up my very own visual. So that means you're not you're not dogless. The dog has been born. It has a name. It just has not the. It's already got a name. Oh, it Hazel. That, that was actually that was actually Jared's doing. It. He he was throwing some names to me. All right. Uh, I was kind of brainstorming and told him about it and he threw out that that out and i said i'm taking that you i i'm having that name. did you say that did, when we were on on the wing podcast with bob did you say hazel at that time or was it undisclosed at that time i can't can't recall i, I, I think remember. maybe i said it okay I think maybe i said it yeah. Yeah. We, we've we've, we've had noticed john's wife is also a forester so they wanted something woods or forestry sure yeah. well girls yeah, we, we were I mean, throwing out corcus we we're throwing you know for oak we we're throwing all kinds of different names and <laughs> And Jared's in, inside in forestry <laughs> joke there, yeah. <laughs> you know, Betula, Allegancius, uh, you know, American right. Elm, all kinds of names were thrown out there. None of them really worked. Then Jesus, uh, Jared said Hazel, and we said, I'm taking that. That's perfect. Hazel's a good one, especially for a girl. What do you guys think of Hazel Brush? I think it's good. We were in all, I just got whacked in the face by a lot of Hazel Brush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jared, Jared's yeah. got some blood on his face. Yeah. So yep. He got whacked pretty good by yep. some today. But, but no, up, up until this point, you know, for me, um, like you just mentioned, is that really going to stop you from getting a dog? Right. We we had some population concerns recently with rough grouse and lake states. I'm diving in fully. I'm I'm getting yeah. myself a dog. Yeah. Um. Up until this point, I've been really treating getting a dog. I, I viewed it a lot like having a friend with a, a a bass boat or a pontoon boat. You know, you show up, they've got the dog. You right. bring a six pack of beer and you kind of walk away, and they've got to. Uh, they got the responsibility. They got to take care of the maintenance. <laughs> they got to drain the transom and stuff like that. But yeah. uh, no diving in fully. Yeah, well, at least with a dog, you know, there's a a dog brings a lot into a person's life, and you're gonna you're gonna get to experience all that. Have, do you have Did you have dogs growing up? Yeah, you yeah. Had, had had Springer's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had had two different labs. Had a golden retriever. I, th- I think that was most of them. Yeah, but yeah, like you said, I mean, that's certainly the way that I look at it. I, of course, because I'm neck deep and I'm really passionate about upland hunting, specifically rough grouse and woodcock hunting, I pay attention to everything. So I pay attention to the drumming counts and I pay attention to, I keep statistics in the woods because I want to know just for my, really my own personal benefit. I want to know what does this hunting season look like compared to last hunting season. And I do that because I'm interested in it, but it's not going to stop me from going at least at this point. And 
I say that on standing on pretty firm ground in the sense that I'm lucky because I have access to really high quality habitat. You know, I live in Duluth. My cabin is over here in northern Wisconsin. I can go any direction from my house where I live in Duluth, any direction I can get into phenomenal grouse habitat. Not everybody has that opportunity, but at least as of right now, the way things stand, where high quality habitat exists in this area, we're finding birds. And we did, we did have some, based on my numbers and reports of friends, the last couple of years were interesting years. The bird numbers were lower and I've only been I've only been keeping track of these statistics for so long and and I each year I you know I consider I get better and better at grouse hunting right so there's some there's some things that play into that but for me personally this has been one of the best seasons I've had in it could be my best ever just based on based on memory and and personal experience but it's been a very very good season and I've hunted a lot in Minnesota and Wisconsin along those lines I mean, Jared. I know you've spent a lot of time in the woods. John, you're you're a busy guy, but you've you've hunted quite a bit. What's let's let's start with Jared. What what's your take been on on this bird season, especially compared to say 2017, 2018? Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is only really my second full fall okay. um, up here. But that being said, it's um, this fall has been a lot better than yeah. last year. So I, I do have a grouse camp, um, the third weekend in October, we did it, did one around the same time last year with the same group and the same dogs. And we, we had a lot more success this year, this year. not only a lot more birds harvested, but a lot more flushes. Um, yep. You know, I would say some of that is probably attributed to that. We're better hunters than yep. we were last year. Yep. Um, you know, my friends that came up last year, that was their first time ever grouse hunting before. But we hunted uh, a lot of the same spots and flushed a lot more birds yep. in those spots. So I don't keep notes or yep. really flush counts or anything along those lines, but I just, I know when things are better than yeah. they were. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. John, what, what's... Uh... I, I, I think I think definitely this year compared to the past uh, the past two years, definitely we're, we're, we're improving. Not just, you know, my experiences going out hunting uh, different covers, but also talking to a lot of the same hunters talking about their experiences the past couple of years kind of regionally yep. um my, my position puts me in a um, unique spot where i get to talk to a lot of our 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 members a lot of individuals who are very very active grouse hunters one of the things that, that i do through our jess is help distribute some of our west nile virus sampling kits we're helping dnr put out and so talking to people just through putting out kits how many birds uh, how many birds you put up how many birds are you, are you shooting yep. what what are you seeing and, and the times I've gotten out this this uh, spring, a lot more a lot more broods I, I saw this 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 year compared to the past two. So I, I sure. think we're we're in a mode of improvement, but still a lot of a lot of concerns uh, just as far as what happened. Yeah, definitely. It was. <clears throat> I mean, we've talked about it. I I would say at length on this podcast. I mean, really, 2017 was the year where spring drumming counts were very high. They were upwards. They were nearly 60% increase in Minnesota, I think, but they were very high. And that was the year where people hit the woods and did not, even though drumming counts do not, they're not directly tied to, they can be tied to fall success, but a lot happens between the time when the drumming counts are released and the hunting season begins. Most importantly, the hatch of young birds, which is one of the most, I think personally, one of the one of the biggest factors as far as what people perceive to be hunting quality and the number of birds they see in the fall. I think is is 
very closely tied to how productive the hatch was. And I think this year, again, talking to enough people, spending enough time in the woods myself and having that sort of core group of, of hunters that I know how they hunt. I know how much time they spend in the woods talking to them. I think there was a very productive hatch in the areas that I hunt this year. And that's almost a, a certainty really. I mean, there's, there was, there were more birds in the woods this year than there were in the past couple. But again, the hatch, the hatch plays into hunter success quite a bit because twofold really, if there's a productive hatch, you have more birds in the woods, but they're also young birds. They're not as, they're not as savvy as some of those crafty old drummers and, and people can more easily find success harvesting a few of those birds. Yeah. I, I, there's think, lots of uh, for that. I think, you know, you know, as well as anybody that a lot of times when you get into a pot of juvenile birds, you can pretty much tell that it's going to be a juvenile yeah. as soon as you pull the trigger, just yes. based on yep. how the dog handles them, how they fly. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot harder to get a big drummer than it is. It bear. is. Yeah. Yep, definitely. And, and that's something with uh, working with private landowners too. Private landowners are on their property a lot of times, almost every single day, running their trails. And you know, the reports that I got from most private landowners is, you know, it seems like we're seeing a lot more broods this year and bigger broods, and just. But that, yeah. that's been my report. But you hit on a, a couple of really important things there, Nick. Uh, j- just about that, the drumming survey really does not tell us much about the season it's really just indexing the population again is it going up and going down indexing as opposed to a census like yeah giving us a population estimate exactly give us an estimate of the population just tells us trends Mm -hmm. in in that population but you you hit on a a a really important note that a lot can happen between the time in the spring when we do the drumming surveys to the time that the season actually starts you know that could very well be some of the impacts impactors that we've seen the past couple years where the season didn't really pan out for people. We got hit with some really heavy spring rains the past several years. Yep. Even this year, um, we got hit with some heavy spring rains, but it may have happened late enough where the broods were able to survive that. Because, of course, when, when, a, when a young grouse is born, you know, it's, it's just a little bumblebee as yep. far as the size goes. Yep. And if you get hit with a really heavy torrential storm that time of the year when they're hatching, it can spell a lot of, a lot of doom for, for the population at least those those birds that get impacted yep so so this year we may be we may be lucked out uh, as far as far as that went where the past couple of years were not so much yeah 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 and I, I i definitely didn't i don't want this conversation to spiral into talking about drumming counts and and bird numbers or anything like that it was really just to get your guys perspective as as two grouse hunters that's been keep t- it positive yeah, yeah well <laughs> well i mean at the end of the day it's been a great season and and anybody that if there's anybody out there that decided not to hunt this year based on what happened the last couple of years, they really missed out they, in my opinion. Out. And yeah. that, that's why I, I said it, it's got to come back. You know, don't let those type of things, yeah. that, that those doom and gloom or the reports, yep. either anecdotal or more scientific, hearing from people at, at the taverns, right? go out there and get yourself a dog. Yeah. You, you've got so many years on this planet to, to enjoy upland hunting. Yeah. Go out there and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And as a transplant, I'm just always amazed how much opportunity, like you said right. before, we have so much public land to explore and, you know, not every spot's going to be that golden gem, but you know, I, I think the thing that I enjoy the most is finding that next best spot. Yep. And, and it, it, you it, know, it's kind of a trap too, to compare it every spot two years previous because grouse habitat, um, changes, you know, every year. Certainly. Um, you know, covers age out, the shrub composition changes, the, everything changes. And, you know, I, I think that grouse hunters too, a lot of times pay attention to 
you know, the different foods and how things change maybe a little bit more closely than other, other bird hunters, because they know that those things are, are can really influence year to year on where they find birds. Yeah. And, and there's, yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Jared. And a lot of my, my backgrounds in forestry and ecology and translating the, that type of knowledge to, to your average grouse hunter, just to explain to him that that cover may have gotten hit with more rain or less rain this year compared to the last two mm-hmm. that may change a, a flush in a certain type of vegetation compared to previous years. It may mean more berries on winter berry, for example, or may mean less. It could mean more insects in that particular spot or not. There's a lot, it, a lot more changes from year to year than I think your average hunter um, considers just due to a lot of the changes that we see just uh, one weather event over another or just the growth of that vegetation over time. That's maybe the one thing that you know a lot of a lot of RGS members and grouse hunters in general really key into the changes in forest habitat over time. But there's a lot more going on there, a lot more complex relationships than a lot of people realize. Yeah, it's more than just finding the silver dollar aspen. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot. And this year in Wisconsin, we had a tremendous uh, red oak acorn year too. So you know, a lot of the spots that I have had really my best success in have actually been oak forests, whether they're young oak forests or aspen forests that are adjacent or have some big red oak ridges. And, you know, most of the birds that I've harvested are just full of oak. And I think that that's important to touch on because if we have a diversity of different food sources for grouse as we send them into the winter, the the better off they're going to be if they're able to not have to move very much to find good food. um, And then they're just in a better body condition going into the winter and, and spring. You know, it's all... It's all nuanced and it plays into our year-to-year success. And, you know, maybe there's something tied to the drumming counts and just in that 10-year cycle in regards to just the abundance or, you know, in abundance of food sure. in certain time periods. Yeah, nothing is static out there. I mean, it's it's always changing. The birds obviously know how to survive on this landscape and they're going to use whatever they whatever they can. There's one food source over another that, that is more prevalent one year or another that's, that's going to help certain birds in certain areas. I mean, that's one of the things that Jared, you talked about finding new areas. That's, that's become one of the most enjoyable parts of grouse hunting for me, you know, where we are at this cabin, I've got, there's grouse at the end of the driveway. I have, there's thousands, thousands of acres of public land to the South of this cabin. And I know there are birds there, but I, I will drive around basically the two counties that were, were near, I'll drive all over and try different areas just because I want to, number one, I like, I just like hunting new spots, but number two, I, I think it's, I get enjoyment out of hunting one area today and then a different area tomorrow and kind of, you know, sort of almost keeping your finger on the pulse of different areas and seeing what you're finding for birds. And one of the neat things about this area compared to, again, where I used to hunt in Northern Minnesota, I used to hunt a very small area and everything, all the soil type was the same. It was heavy clay soil. And so the forest type was pretty consistent. And so I got to know that kind of cover very well. And I've, I've talked to you guys about this. I've talked to my friends about it a little bit coming over here. There's a, there's quite a variety in soil type and just a slight change in soil type, whether it's drainage or just the makeup of the soil can really change yeah. what the forest looks like, whether it's sandy, you get sand and oak and hardwood or you get that heavy stuff and you get alders and spruce and that kind of stuff. That diversity and that variety in the forest habitat has, that's kind of one of my most recent interests. And I mean, it's just, it's almost amazing to me how much it can vary 
mile by mile as you're driving down the highway. I I always like to tell people that the glaciers did a number on Wisconsin. There you go, yeah. They really did a lot as far as driving the soil types, which really drive the vegetation that we have, the diverse vegetation we have throughout Wisconsin. So, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that because you can go from, I mean, just over the next ridge top, it can be completely sandy and dry. Yep. It can be more of an oak Oak scrub oak barren type type habitat. So yeah, the, the glaciers definitely had a major influence on that. Yep, and there are grouse in both kinds. There are of habitat. There are. You, <laughs> they, you don't just have to go trudging through swamps. You can hunt some of the sand <laughs> ground too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Despite uh, despite what what our walk looked like today. So the 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 second walk that we did today that was that's kind of one of my fallback covers because again it looks like the cover that I used to hunt growing up and it's very swampy. It's heavy soil. Very woodcocky. Yeah, woodcock. Yeah, there's there's cedars in there, there's spruce in there, and there were grouse in there. There were. There you were you, sure you called it out. You said as soon as you get those cedars, you knew <laughs> you had them. You had their address, I believe. Yeah, I may have been. I may have been in there once this year, but uh, we hunted it. That was our second time in there this year. We probably won't go back, but it's it's fun. The, the sandy soil again. The sandy soil areas where you've got the more oak, scrub oak. There's still aspen there. Mm-hmm. You get hazelbrush in there. You can get some, I mean, there's some great, great stuff in there. That's the stuff where I have less experience hunting. But Jared, from talking to you, it sounds like you, you like that stuff. You've, you like yeah. to, you would go in there, given the choice one over the other, you're going to head into the sandy stuff. Yep. And, um, you know, the, like John mentioned with, uh, the glaciers doing a number spooner, uh, is in the northwest part of the state, and it's kind of the crossroads where we have a lot of different habitat types and ecological regions kind of twisting. So where I live, I can go in any direction and hunt the wet, you know, the, the lower uh, northern forest region, I can hunt the sand. And, you know, really it's, I, I kind of like the sand country for one, because I just like the way it looks. It's just really aesthetically pleasing to me. I like the oaks. I like the topography. Um, I like not being wet. Um, and <laughs> it's just something that just seems birdier to me. It's where I kind of, I just kind of walked out my back door and I live in the sand and that's just kind of where I figured things out, so to speak. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, tend to agree with Jared that uh, I prefer hunting in those sandy areas, but that, that kind of gets to where I grew up uh, in north-central Wisconsin, uh, around Tomahawk. There, it was in the northern highlands, ecological landscape. We're here, we're, we're more towards the, the northwest sands. Very similar for all, all, all intents and purposes, so I, I kind of have that preference too, but definitely nothing wrong with getting your, your feet wet. Yeah, in, in, in both literally. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say, though, yeah, we were talking about this just uh uh, just before I started the podcast, that you kind of have to watch out uh, for ticks, maybe more in that drier, yep. uh, sandier type habitat sometimes. Yep. So definitely bring the permethrin indeed. Yeah. And it's worth noting, too, a lot of the sand country in this area not too long ago is actually sharp tailed grouse right. country. Yep. Um, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, rough grouse are an early successional species that need active management. No, it wasn't that long ago to where active management on this landscape was very much fire oriented. Yep. Um, and it, it looked a lot different. And those soil types really dictate, you know, what what's here now. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an interesting point. There's I got to know that history a little bit a lot better, I should say, when I interviewed a couple of the guys on the Wisconsin Sharp Tail committee over the summer and talked about this region of Wisconsin. That was a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was, that was a really fun conversation to me. Number one, because I have a personal connection to the area. So learning the history is, is obviously really cool. And there are, there are sharp tailed grouse. I mean, within 
10, 15 miles of this cabin. I've seen them. I've found them. They are they are still here, and, and those gentlemen, along with every all the partners in conservation that they work with, are still working to, to bringing sharp-tailed grouse, bringing those populations up yeah. in this yeah. area, which is which is pretty cool. But to your point, Jared, yeah, the fires used to rip across this, this sandy country, and there was a lot of that open barren type area and we still have some down throughout a lot of the state really i mean a lot of wisconsin is what we kind of call attention zone so it's kind of where the prairie and the forest are competing with each other to some extent um you know they're burning they're growing under brush prairie they're kind of it's not set in stone as to this is you know right forest it's push pull it's pushing and pulling and it, it was previously you know there was a lot of human interface with with Native Americans and fire and how they manage the landscape. And I know John actually did a lot of his uh, master's research just about, you know, we, we like to think that Wisconsin looked a certain way, sure, um, but really it has looked very different within just a couple lifetimes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it, uh, it, and I think that that's why I really like the sand too, is because it's, it's just uh, a, a very interesting ecological landscape. Yeah. But, but these are some of the things that, you know, as as you become a hunter, you know, one of the goals I, I, I firmly believe of becoming a hunter is that you transition into becoming a conservationist. Yeah. Is that you, you get out there, hunt these species, you kind of, you learn a little bit more about them through getting out in the habitat or if you're fishing, getting on the water. And, and you, you learn a little bit more about these complex relationships. And these are things, the concepts you begin to understand is, you know, we're talking about geology as it relates to rough grouse. Yep. We're, we're talking about how you know, forest management uh, changes and over time, this area that we're up in used to be more sharptail habitat, yeah. but it's transitioned over time to being more rough grouse habitat just to do changes in forest management. Yeah. But you, you begin to understand the greater landscape problems that, that we're facing as uh, land managers, conservationists, because of course, in Wisconsin, sharptail grouse are facing a lot of same concerns that rough grouse are facing throughout much of the eastern United States. Right. Just changes in forest habitat, structure over time. With their, those species, it's more of an encroachment of, of the, the woody vegetation. Um, but it be, you begin to build a concept of the bigger picture things. Yeah. But I, I think the hunting is definitely a gateway drug to that, uh, that conservation sort of way of thinking. Yeah, I would agree. It, and I would, I would say that, again, I, I mentioned kind of where I grew up hunting. I, I like to refer to it now as I was kind of in a bubble. You know, I just hunted this very small area that it was very good rough grouse hunting. And that's where, that's where my love of, and my passion for rough grouse hunting was born, but it's really transformed into much more of that sort of conservationist viewpoint and just being appreciative of the variety and the diversity of the landscape as I have pursued rough grouse across the region. And, and I'm, you know, I've hunted them in Minnesota, I've hunted them in Wisconsin and Michigan. And those three states, while they have their similarities, they certainly have their differences. And when you pursue this bird, these birds, rough grouse and woodcock across these different regions, you, again, you're building that personal connection with the landscape and getting out and seeing the different areas and the different regions that they can inhabit. It's, it has absolutely fueled my interest in sort of the, like you said, the geological history, the forested landscape, everything that I'm looking at, seeing, touching, walking through it's I pay so much more attention to it now yeah. because it's that connection just gets stronger and stronger. Well, like, like Jared and I, you know, 
we have a formal education in natural resources yep. and, and conservation. Every biologist who works for the Rough Grouse Society does. But that doesn't mean that people who went down a different career path or, you know, life trajectory can't learn a lot of these similar, right. similar same concepts simply by going out there and hunting and being observant yeah. um, of, of what you're seeing, um, the type of habitat that you're, you're hunting in. Of course, with, with rough grouse and, and woodcock hunting, you really begin to uh, build a really immediate understanding of how young forest habitat plays into the life history of, of these type of species, their, yeah. their ecology. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing worth noting too about, um, you know, when rough grouse seem to decline um, and hunters notice that, you know, it's often referred to as kind of a bellwether species. And yep. when you see rough grouse and really a lot of upland game birds, uh, bobwhite quail, pheasants, prairie grouse, you know, when, when hunters start to see those decline, um, it's very much an indicator that there's something really going wrong. Um, yep. And, you know, they're visually, you know, you see them all over, they're abundant, and then all of a sudden they just seem to flip a switch and be gone. And that's why, you know, with rough grouse, even though they are abundant in the northern Great Lakes right now, we, we still need to be diligent and make sure that all of a sudden they don't just blip. Absolutely. John, when my dog, well, actually, no, he didn't go on point, but there was a time when we were walking out there today, and all of a sudden I heard a noise that was kind of unfamiliar to me, and then... I looked up over the trees and I saw a very large looking grouse. It looked like a giant grouse in the sky. What was that, John? Yeah, I was going to say, we had the unique opportunity of flushing a uh, wild turkey today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we forgot to mention that one or chalk that one up. That was, only that was flushing, a little, little but pointed and flushed wild yeah, turkey. Yeah, that was a little exciting when that happened. <laughs> that, was in, that turkey was in grouse cover. Yeah. It, it, so would you call that turkey cover then? Well, he was he was right sort of on the edge because uh, we, yeah. we walked maybe 50 yards past that. And it was really, I mean, you were making the comment, God, I got to come back here and set up a turkey blind. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It, it, did, it did look like more more turkey cover there. There was we a big a, opening back there. Big, big opening, a lot of conifer right on the edge of that opening, perfect yep. places to kind of hide yourself. But sure. I don't, I don't know if I'd want to trudge back there. Um, <laughs> To turkey you know, spring, hunt. spring turkey hunting season, I definitely would not want to trudge through all the swamps to get back there. That would be uh, tough to get in there, I think. It'd yeah. be a trophy, though. Yeah. They're, they're def- we saw them out there. They're definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, again, going back to this time of year, being mm-hmm. able to park the truck and just take a peek at the compass and just trudge off into a big expanse of country like that. I just, I get so much enjoyment out of that. And, I mean, you never know what you're going to find back there. Obviously, we're trying to find grouse this time of year, but... There's lots to see out there. Well, and, and well the, we we saw wolf, a lot of wolf, a lot of wolf today. sign today. We did, yep. But we did, we did see another little critter today. We saw, yeah. So there's a couple of things. So we saw, we saw a lot of wolf sign, and this is the first time that I've really covered ground this year. I know that everywhere I hunt, whether it's in Minnesota or Wisconsin, is wolf country. So I know that I have that, but. It's a little bit different when you got that dusting of snow on the ground and you see the tracks. And the first spot that we jumped into today, we were parked on the side of the road and this guy came and we, we chatted with him. He was, he was I don't know what he was doing exactly, but he, he saw the Rough Grouse Society truck and he wanted to stop. And we had, a, we had a good conversation and he made a comment about there being a lot of wolves in the area. But again, I know that everywhere I hunt is wolf country, but we, we started walking in there and it was not very long before we saw wolf tracks and they were kind of all over in there. Well, we, we saw a, uh, a bobcat track today. No, um, we determined that it was probably a fisher track. Oh, that's track. right. Yeah, we did. Fisher track we did. Because Jared knows his 
his footprints. It, it was hard to tell because the, the dogs were circling the one track. We were <laughs> trying were. to fight him off the one track to get yeah. Jared over to we take We were trying to get him in as our tracking expert, but we, we think it was a fisher. That was a big track. That, I was, mean, that was big. For a, for, uh, I know a fisher is not a small animal, but... Yeah, they're they're bigger than you'd think. Yeah, when you see them in person, you know I've I've actually seen a few pretty close this year, and it's uh they're they're a lot bigger than you think. Yeah, it's, well, and a friend of mine, I went trapping one year. I've got I've I've tagged along trapping, uh, with a friend of mine in Minnesota where you're trapping for Martin and Fisher, and we had gotten a few Martins. We had never got a Fisher, but you kind of you sort of have those in your head like Martin and Fisher are the same thing, but a Fisher is considerably bigger than a Pine Martin. A Pine Martin's kind of a Pine Martin's like a really big ermine, which yeah. we also would you say ermine or ermine? I, I think ermine's maybe more correct. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, well I want to go with the correct one. <laughs> ermine. But that 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 was uh that was an unexpected uh yeah thing to see at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. So very very sociable ermine. Urban. He was he was really curious about us. Yeah, he was cute little guy. Yeah, yeah. And Jared fed him tonight. Yep. Uh, we yeah we cleaned <laughs> uh, the snowshoe on the tailgate and uh, he was on it almost immediately. Exactly. <laughs> no, no worries about us. He he knew that he was gonna he was gonna warm meal tonight. Yeah. We're not gonna wrap up quite yet. We're getting close, but I do want to talk about a little bit about Rough Girls Society in the sense that. We've kind of touched on it throughout, but John and Jared do distinctly different things for the Rough Grouse Society. And we'll start with Jared because, Jared, you have a unique position with the Rough Grouse Society. And correct me if I'm wrong, but almost all of your focus is on private landowners. Is that yep. correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit as far as what you are as a resource to private landowners in connection with the Rough Grouse Society. Right. So I guess... To first set the stage a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot about our abundance of public land that we have right. in northern Wisconsin. But that being said, uh, there's still a tremendous and a majority of the ownership is in non-industrial private forest. So we also have some industrial private forest yep. lands. I don't work with industrial forest land owners, just what we call non-industrial private forest land or just, you know, your average landowner who's kind of got a back 40. Yep. That has a huge impact on rough grouse and woodcock because it interfaces with all of the public land. Um, and it also provides some unique opportunities for habitat. You know, it's in a partnership with the uh, USDA, the Department of Agriculture, Natural Resources Conservation Service, as well as the Wisconsin DNR. I'm housed in a USDA service center, and I work um, pretty directly, especially with um, farm bill programs. So the farm bill is a pretty large omnibus bill that you know, funds all manner of things. Um, but there's really some programs for private landowners to improve forest land, wildlife habitat. Um, and I, I help the, the service centers here in Northwest Wisconsin um, kind of decipher, you know, how the program best fits, help them do the site visits, do the planning, um, do the contracting. And then I also help the private landowners you know, navigate through some of the state programs and how the farm bill programs and the state programs and all the other stuff that's kind of going on, um, the consulting forestry side of things. I just help answer those questions on how everything kind of works together. So it's not just about getting them, you know, money to do any one thing. It's, it's just helping them holistically manage and figure out how everything pieces together, what works for me, what doesn't, um, what resources, you know, do I need to be successful as a private landowner? Yep. There's obviously a big focus on the young forest side of things. However, I, you know, I, 
I still help a lot of forest landowners with just general forest management. Yep. It's not all it's not all clear cuts and alder shearing. I do a lot of work uh, on all different types of forest wildlife habitat. So my title is a forest wildlife specialist, and you know it's it's all forest wildlife. So if we're able to help landowners navigate through um, kind of the confusion and, you know, it's, it's a lot of times intimidating and I'm there to help, you right. know, they don't, uh, they don't owe me anything. You know, all my services are free. Um, anybody can call me up and set up a site visit and we can take a walk and they have no obligation to do any one thing or the other. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's some value in that, that I, I kind of come with no strings attached, but I can help you figure out what you want to do and how best to do it. Yeah. And then knowing that everything you do, you know, each person that you work with, every, every project that you work on is going to be unique. So there's, there's that like, try to paint a picture of like what might happen. So somebody could call you up, Jared, you could, if, if they're in your territory, you're they're in your region, you could come out to their property, walk it with them, talk about sort of their wants, mm-hmm. needs, and then you're that resource. You're going to point them in the right direction as far as whether they need a forester, whether they need a wildlife biologist. Talk about some of those pathways that somebody could go down. Sure. So yeah, most things start with, I ask them just the basic questions of, you know, the biggest one is what's, what's your past management history? What have you been doing out here? What, you know, what do you got going on? Have you ever done anything? How long have you owned it? And then what, what are your objectives? Um, you know, some, you know, really the overwhelming objective, um, for forest landowners is, you know, wildlife habitat, um, especially deer habitat. Sure. Some it's timber production, um, timber productions, a lot of times, uh, pretty close to um, second on the wildlife habitat, especially for larger forest landowners. So I'd, I'd walk the property with them and identify, you know, some things that they're doing well, maybe some things that they're not doing quite so well. Really, um, a lot of uh, the ones that jump out are, I do a, a lot of, um, you know, alder and non-commercial work. A lot of it is kind of those non-commercial things that can really set you up well to be a good forest land steward um, and conduct good you know, timber sales and things of that nature, you know, so things like invasive species, sure. you know, competition control in the understory if you're setting up a sale. Um, and then also, you know, some of the aspen and alder shearing work where we're regenerating and diversifying our age classes that might not be commercial in nature and that we're not selling a timber product out of there, but um, introducing some age class diversity, you know, is definitely going to benefit grouse and woodcock on that property. Sure. Um, and if they decide they want to proceed with something, um, like I say, I'm, I'm pretty closely tied into the farm bill programs. Um, if they need some financial assistance. Um, and then a lot of times, you know, people maybe have never thought of, you know, Wisconsin's managed forest law program, yep. which can provide some tax incentive to um, follow a management plan. Um, do some timber harvesting in the future, or maybe things like the deer management assistance program, which is a state program that can help, you know, people better understand how many deer they have, how to manage it and the impacts those deer are having on their forest. So there's, you know, it's, it, every situation is different yep. and everybody is also capable of a lot different. You know, that's the other thing that I try to really figure out with people is what are your, you know, physical and financial abilities to manage this property too and keep people kind of grounded and and make sure that they don't bite off too much and get overwhelmed gotcha john you work with public and private lands yeah but you're the work that you do for the rough grouse society looks a little bit different than what what jared does it's it's quite a bit quite a bit different um huge part of my my job is engaging with the public lands managers sure Uh, you know in wisconsin we're we're blessed with uh 
uh, a wealth of of public land. Well, we, we've got state, we've got national forests, but yep. also we're relatively unique in North America with um, the county forest land system in, in our state. Um, land covered under the County Forest Association and covered through the Wisconsin County Forest Law. Um, so engaging with with each of those uh, different how, sorts. If I can stop you for a second, yeah. how is it how is it unique in Wisconsin? Because the I know that you know there's there's county land in Minnesota. There's county land. The the county land in Wisconsin is phenomenal. It's it's very well managed. How is it unique? Well, it, it's a little bit unique in in that the county forest law basically mandates that the count each county forest in the county forest system has to manage with uh, timber production at, at first and foremost okay. with secondary um, considerations for wildlife. Okay. And essentially the, that system is, is designed to help offset the tax levy. And a lot, a lot of these lands that are, are in the, those county forests were once tax default land. It was, it was basically part of the, the, the farm abandonment yep. of the 1930s uh, is how these lands got turned back over to the county and essentially reverted to either back to forest or turned into forest just just over time is now managed for again that timber production first and foremost uh ideas just delivering timber to the mill to help generate and, and spur uh productive forestry industry in, in Wisconsin yep. and of course that benefits your rough grouse hunter your, Correct. your woodcock hunter because timber management goes hand in hand with creating the habitat yep Yep. So it, it's it's relatively unique that it's the system is designed for timber production for first and foremost. Uh, you, you might might always think of the land as being more managed like industrial forest property, but then we have these secondary considerations of wildlife, wildlife, wildlife habitat yep. in mind, and they they collectively are the single largest public landowner in the state of Wisconsin. So one of the reasons we have such an active forest products industry in our state, and one of the reasons we have a wealth of young forest habitat is because of our county forest system. I know a lot of this because I used to be a county forester hey. at one point in my career, but uh, a lot, you know, a lot of the work that I do is engaging with those type of public lands partners. One thing that that I do is through the generosity of our RGS members yep. is we're able to put out what we call our state drummer fund. Uh, it's some, it's a basically a pot of money that each state has raised by our members or donated to us by, by generous individuals. And we basically bring money to the different public landowners and say, we want to work towards improving wildlife habitat in your county uh, or on your state forest or in your national forest and work with them to develop projects that move us towards that, that end goal. Usually looking for some sort of match or sharing so we can expand that, uh, that, gift from RGS members into a larger project, make our dollar go further. And those, those dollars is actually, um, some of those, those gifts to us, our, our society help fund our forestry wildlife specialist positions like Dan and Jared's. Yep. Um, so actively helping to engage on private lands as well through, through that match. That's a, that's a big part of, part of the, the job, but also just engaging with them when they're looking for planning. Um, so right now, some of the county forests are going through their 15-year plan revision process. What this means is that each county forest has a 15-year forest management plan, and they look at, well, how they're going to manage each individual resource on, on their county forest. So they might have an Aspen resource. They might be looking for, for input from an external partner on how they should manage their Aspen resource for that secondary type benefit. Sure. Um, so a lot of the the job is actually just commenting on 
what we'd like to see as a society on these public lands and how we would like to see them managed. Doing similar things with state forests as well, state wildlife areas as well as national forests. One of the unique things that we're getting engaged in right now on the national forest in Minnesota is what's called stewardship contracting. Basic breakdown of that is is where we were approached by the uh, the national forest, um, the Chippewa National Forest in particular, to essentially through some unique federal legislation have partial management of um, an area of national forest turned over to RGS. So we can essentially establish a timber sale, an approved timber sale by the Forest Service on, on the, the forest. And then the timber sale receipts from that timber sale, instead of going to uh, different national coffers, uh, God knows where to disappear. Sure. Through that legislation, that revenue is then reinvested into the local national forest. Really? In the form of uh, different contract service work. And for our project, we've designated essentially hunter walking trail complex. Uh, so we're, we're looking at uh, ways of improving grouse and woodcock habitat within this sort of landscape level approach. So RGS, in this unique arrangement, which is sounds really cool, RGS administers a timber sale? It, it's the, I forget the exact title or phrase given to you're, the you're assisting you're assisting with setting up a we're, we're, timber we're sale. administrating we're administering it with a lot of guidance and oversight sure so yeah so you're you're directing however you want to say it directing administering a timber sale and then the funds from that timber sale are getting directed back into that local area whether it's hunter walking trails or, or you guys are having some influence on that that's that's pretty neat is that is that a unique arrangement? It, it it's relatively unique. You're seeing a lot of you're seeing a lot of the national forest kind of start to tune into that as a management option to get okay. to get harvesting done in a lot of the the national forests where we've seen um, decreased harvesting. Right, which are gen- uh, yeah generally in in, in Wisconsin. There's been a bigger emphasis placed on the Good Neighbor Authority, and that's maybe something that a lot more people have heard of is the Good Neighbor Authority. But the second piece is the stewardship contracting, where the national forest can essentially work with either local governments or conservation groups. Yeah. Yep, conservation okay. groups like ourselves. Interesting. So that's, cool. that's one of you know one of the unique opportunities that we're you know for RGS we're we're pushing toward we're striving for it to to really build stewardship and partnership because um, yep. because we know in order to in in order to really make landscape level changes or move that needle on habitat we we can't be adversarial towards our public lands managers yeah. we, we really have to work in a partnership you got to be on the same team and that's the beauty of of the stewardship agreements that we really are working in a partnership with the national forest and so we're we're literally weeks away from signing that agreement excellent that's great. Um, and then moving to um, other states in my, my region, you know, some of the things we're doing in Iowa, Jared's home state, is we're really trying to assist the, the Iowa DNR with land acquisition. Of course, that's one of the major problems in Iowa is simply the, the lack of um, public hunting opportunity uh, just because of the, the, the small amount or the low acreage of, of public land sure. uh, in Iowa. So that's one thing that we're, we're actively engaging our members in Iowa to, to have a really something to rally behind. So what you're telling me is my RGS rough girl society, AWS membership dollars are going to habitat improvement and hunter opportunity. Yes. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> why, why wouldn't you sign up for that? I, you know, 
you sold me on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have to, but. No, you, you, you didn't have to. And that's just a, a piece of it. So right. that, that's really the, really the, the public lands uh, aspect in, in a nutshell. Right. Um, that matters. That matters to a lot of people listening to this. Yeah, h- helping helping to to actively form the decision making through through being a partner with with the public agencies to drive management plans. Yeah. Um, actively helping to fund habitat projects that would otherwise probably fall through the cracks, never get done, or or even be considered. Yep. And it's actually it's it's really it glows a special part in my my heart when I I have a. Um, a county forester or a DNR person reach out to me and say, you know, I've got this idea. I want to do this. Yeah. You know, even if it's just giving advice, a lot of times they look to the RGS biologist as being the grouse expert and yep. I'll contact the grouse expert and get all kinds of ideas. And if it turns into something where we, we talk about, well, are there hurdles to getting that implemented? How can we best use RGS dollars to match with, you know, county funds, state funds, federal funds yep. to grow grow that project to be something special that that's a big part of it or getting engaged in stewardship contracting yeah but pulling away from the, the public lands management jared is a forestry wildlife specialist he focuses in on you know engaging the private landowners in his region with uh with active forest management where my role really with with the private landowners more in outreach uh, outreach education to help inform some of their decision making and then turn them over to somebody like Jared to can then take take that baton and just run with it of course you know when Jared works with the private landowners there's a lot less red tape involved to, yeah. to be able to get a lot of these projects done and yep. that's maybe one of the reasons why it's so important to to get them engaged is cuz we can we can move the needle faster on private lands as compared to sure. public lands yeah yeah, well, this will be my shameless plug for the Rough Grouse Society, but I think you hit on a really important point there, John, because one could look at the Rough Grouse Society and think, well, they're, wow, they're kind of a small organization. And while I think all three of us in this room would agree Rough Grouse Society should be a lot bigger, and I hope they continue to grow as they have been, but despite their perhaps relatively small size, these are important decisions that are being made about the public lands that we hunt. And like you were saying, you could have a group of public lands managers, professionals in a room. They're just people at the end of the day, they're making decisions. They've got a job to do and they're going to do it, but they want your input. They want your input as far as speaking for the Rough Grouse Society. What's the, what is your input going to be for this public land management decision based on the health of Rough Grouse and Woodcock populations? And for me, that's all I need to know. That's all I need to know is that my membership dollars are going towards funding your your position to know that you're in the room and you sort of you have my back, right? As a rough grouse hunter in Wisconsin, you have my back and you're talking to the people that are actually making a difference on the landscape because that's their job. So Again, I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's my shameless plug for the Rough Grouse Society is all I need to know is that I have people like you in my corner as a member of the Rough Grouse Society. You guys are doing that work because I value the resource and I appreciate it and I want to see it improved and, and better. And we've been doing it for a long time. We've been doing it since 1961. So so we're, you know, as far as, far as other conservation groups go, we're, we're looked as looked at as so, somewhat of a leader, yeah. at least in the realm of assisting active forest management to Absolutely. Help, help move that needle on, on wildlife habitat. Yep. Awesome. But, well, I appreciate it guys. This has been, this has been fun. I appreciate you joining me for a, a day in the woods. We had a, we had a good time hunting today and, and I thank you for your time on the project up podcast. Jared, 
if people want to get in touch, let's say we got a, a local listener here in Northwest Wisconsin, they want to get in touch with you about perhaps some private land management. What's the best way to do that? Well, my contact information is on the staff page on the RGS website. All right. That's probably the easiest way, or you can call me at 715-450-2531. All right. We'll have links to the staff page so they can get in touch with both you guys. John, same thing? Uh, best way to reach out to me, um, you can find my contact information on, on the RGS website or just send me an email at uh, jons at roughgrousesociety.org, oh, roughgrousesociety right. spelled out. Yes. I, I was thinking they were going to have to spell your last name, but they don't. They, they Luckily, they don't. <laughs> luckily, uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. And everybody listening to this, get over to roughgrousesociety.org. If you're not a member, you're interested, click the join button, go sign up. You can get a free t-shirt. They've got incentives there for you. Sign up. You heard all the reasons why. Just go do it. All right. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.